Hello and welcome to the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I will be your host as we dive into this next episode, specifically on the Christian and the state. So in previous episodes, we've talked about this parallel between the early Christian church and modern alternative movements to the current systems that are in charge in today's society. And part of what we've done in the most recent episodes is explore different options for how to pursue more liberty and freedom. What are some strategies that we can implement in order to achieve those goals under our current circumstances. Now, I want to bring that within the context of our parallel of the Christian church and say, how would a modern Christian that is following those same principles that the early church followed, how would they handle this situation? What would be a strategy that would be viable and moral and effective for someone in this position. I know a lot of listeners are in this position, and even those that aren't, if you remember the last episode I did, one of the main points of most of these strategies related to agorism is that there is a moral ground, an ethical grounds for not pursuing violence or politics or things of this nature. And so even for those that are not necessarily Christians, they will be building on a similar ideological standpoint that they probably want to be true to. I would hope, at least, that we all want to be true to our own beliefs. And so this should be relevant for everyone. I would also like to give a shout out. I missed him, I think, last episode, but there is another supporter that's come on fairly recently on Patreon. That would be Freeman Fundamentals. And if you are interested in checking him out, I'll go ahead and give him a shout out for his own YouTube channel that's apparently fairly new as well as uh, Instagram channel that he has and you can look for that at freeman underscore fundamentals. I honestly have not had a chance to look at it because since I have gotten his information I have been on vacation and I just got back yesterday. So I'll check that out as well but you're welcome to too. But just in general thank you very much for your support and thank you to all of those that are supporting this show and who believe that this content and this information and taking the time to delve into these things is worthy of supporting financially and is worthy of putting it out there for free to the general audience. And the reason why that is possible is because of supporters. So thank you very much. Let's go ahead and just dig right into the content for today's show. Basically, Christians are in a complicated predicament here. The worldly systems that we live under are corrupt, they are anti-biblical, they are against these biblical principles, the principles of the natural order, and God's designs for society are perfect. Yet those designs of perfection for society are not possible under secular rule because of these contradictions. Also, Every individual has the free will to live as they choose, and every human is created by God and is therefore to submit completely to him and live as he commands. That seems like a bit of a contradiction here. We are also stuck with this issue of being told to submit to the earthly authorities and, at the same time, be set apart and be holy and follow God's authority. 
these all do seem to be contradictory, but they are actually definitely not. They simply show the contradictory nature of the secular world versus the kingdom of God. So if we mesh biblical teaching with the secular politics of the state, that's not the goal here, because that would be infringing on another's right to free will, among other issues, mainly moral and biblical. We are to embrace and illuminate the contradistinctions between God's way and the world's way. That is what we are to do. We do this by living within the world systems, while living under the rule of God. So we submit to the world, but only in our servitude to God. We change the world not through revolution or reformation or direct rebellion, but through simply living out God's principles and highlighting the contradictions between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We highlight them through both word and deed. So I will now read a few passages from the Bible. I'll read three different ones. Two are pretty close together, but the first one is short, and this is from Colossians 3.17. It says simply, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then John 15 in verse 18 through 21 says, this is uh, Yeshua talking as well. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you do not belong to the world, on the contrary, I have picked you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. If they kept my word, they will keep yours too." But they will do all this to you on my account, because they don't know the one who sent me. Then this next uh, longer passage would come from John 17, 6 through 21. And the context would be Yeshua praying for the people of his kingdom on earth. I made your name known to the people you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because the words you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them. They have really come to know that I came from you, and they have come to trust that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Indeed, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and in them I have been glorified. Now I am no longer in the world." They are in the world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, guard them by the power of your name, which you have given to me, so that they may be one, just as we are. When I was with them, I guarded them by the power of your name, which you have given to me. Yes, I kept watch over them, and not one of them was destroyed, except the one meant for destruction, so that the Tanakh might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I myself do not belong to the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart for holiness by means of the truth, your word is truth, 
Just as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. On their behalf, I am setting myself apart for holiness, so that they too may be set apart for holiness by means of the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who will trust in me because of their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are united with me and I with you, I pray that they may be united with us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So I think these passages do state pretty clearly the difference between the world and the people that are chosen by God or that are God's people or have dedicated themselves to God, however you want to phrase that, basically Christians. There is a difference between Christians and the world. While Christians are in the world, they are not of the world. And when Jesus is talking and praying for his people, for the people of God, he's specifically saying that he's not praying for the world, not praying for all humanity. He is praying specifically for Christians for this prayer in particular. And so there is a definite difference between the world and Christians. As Christians, we are to truly live differently. We are to take care of our bodies because they are the temple of Christ. They are also shared by others both directly through something like marriage, where the two become one, and indirectly, such as in service to other people and using our talents or skills or bodies to help others. We are to structure our lives differently than the world through our morality and motivations, as well as through participating in the community of the church. There is also individual action that distinguishes us from the secular world in that we set aside time, we sacrifice our time and our desires for the sake of God. This can be shown through something like Sabbath or a similar observance, or maybe something like Bible study and taking the time to pray. These are things where Christians structure their lives differently than people of the world. We are to honor God through our minds, both passively and directly, by being careful what we allow into our minds, managing what we think about, and being intentional with what we dwell on. So it's not just our actions, it is our minds as well and our thoughts. You take every thought captive. It is difficult to live out these attributes of the Christian within the world's systems. Our current world operates under very different motivations, rewards, goals, structures, and ethics, definitely. So agorism does give us ideas on how to address this and on strategy. Supporting a corrupt and anti-biblical system is definitely not God's ideal. However, we are called to submit to this same system for practical reasons, reasons of conscience, as well as for an example to others. There is a clear distinction, however, between submission and support. I think I've stated that many, many, many times, so that should be pretty clear. There is also a clear distinction between respect and worship. So think of something like the religion of statism versus submitting to the authorities out of respect. Those are two totally different things. This may be largely acknowledged as clear by most people, but often these distinctions are ignored, blurred, or contradicted even if this is done unconsciously and unintentionally. I would say that oftentimes this is unconscious. This is something that people are doing without thinking about it, just like the religion of statism. Most people that are complete status and perform all of these same worship 
rituals and practices in regards to the state, most of them don't think of it as a religion. They don't think of the state as their god, even if the state is filling that role of their god. So keep that in mind. Our role as Christians is not to overthrow or change the kingdom of man, but rather to live out our lives in submission and support of the kingdom of God. Two totally different focuses, even if one should change the other. One should accomplish the former. So when we live our lives in submission and support of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God grows, then in doing so, you are overthrowing and or changing the kingdom of man. So in doing this, the kingdom of God overtakes the kingdoms of man in many different ways. You have governments that do serve a purpose for God, and he uses them throughout history. So long as this purpose is desired, these institutions will remain to fulfill their God-ordained role. We recognize that the state in its current form is contrary to God. We also recognize that God uses it nonetheless. We hope for a future where God has finally abolished all human authorities and governments and reigns himself as king over the earth. There are many prophecies to this effect throughout the scriptures. We do not desire to join the same institutions that God is against and will ultimately destroy. We also do not desire to go against him by using said governments to attempt to accomplish his will. You can't mesh the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. You don't mesh the Christian with the world. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about in the former passages that I read earlier. The closer we get to fully living out our commitment to the kingdom of God, the closer we get to a world less oppressed by the rule of man. I want to read a few more passages, actually one passage from scripture and one quote from David Lipscomb that do relate to these things that I have just said and kind of back them up as well as elaborate a little bit. So this first one is from 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 27, and it kind of gives an outline for future history in a sense. Like how does all of this stuff play out? All this stuff being governments and God's rule and these types of things. So starting with verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive, but each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits. Then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming, then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power. For he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away with will be death. For, quote, he put everything in subjection under his feet. Now I'll get to the quote from David Lipscomb from his book on civil government. Quote, As things now go, every individual in the world might be converted to Christ, and yet the earthly kingdoms would remain in all their present strength and vigor, and the spirit of the world would be cherished in the church of God. But if every man converted to Christ withdrew from the support of earthly kingdoms, these kingdoms would weaken and fall to pieces for lack of supporters, little by little giving way before the increase and spread of the kingdom of God. So he's pointing out two possibilities here. One would be that 
every human on earth becomes a Christian, lives according to God, and all of the institutions remain. And if this were the case, then basically nothing would change as far as the institutions are concerned, and you would still have issues with them. What he is pointing out as the more ideal aspect would be that those who convert to Christ, those who are Christians, withdraw their support from earthly kingdoms, and then these kingdoms would weaken and fall to pieces, which would be the only way for the reference that was in Scripture for the Messiah to put every rulership, yes, every authority and power under his feet, because they are his enemies. It says, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And that's specifically referring to every rulership, every authority, and power. Those are direct quotes from Scripture. So, if the authorities and powers and the world, as far as the kingdom of man is concerned, are the enemies of God, and at some point Christ will put them all under his feet, he will defeat them all and rule himself, then the first option from David Lipscomb doesn't really seem like it would fit with that, where you keep all of the institutions and you just convert everybody to Christians and, oh, all of a sudden these are Christian institutions. Well, if you believe the outline in the Bible, that timeline there, that's not really the way it plays out. But if you follow the second half, which is more in line with things that we have been discussing on this podcast, then you can achieve that timeline, and it actually fits very well. Whereas people filter into the kingdom of God and following these principles of the natural order, then little by little, they're withdrawing their support and participation in the world, in the kingdom of man. And in doing so, these kingdoms, these rulers, these governments, these states start to fall apart. And as they are falling apart and they are basically being conquered, they are losing their power and authority, the kingdom of God is gaining power, gaining authority, and gaining ground. So as the previous verse stated in 1 Corinthians, Yeshua will put an end to all rulerships on earth. Every earthly government will be defeated, and only the kingdom of God will remain. The old will die and pass away, but in its place will be the ideal, the perfect kingdom that God has promised. We do not know exactly how this process will take place, but we do know the sides involved. On one side is the kingdom of man with all the earthly governments, and on the other side is the kingdom of God with only himself and the church. You have the world and you have God's people. Those were the distinctions that Yeshua made in his prayer that I read even earlier. You will either be for him or against him. He directly says that as well. You must choose which master to serve. There are parables on that as well. There are many passages that clearly state this opposition of God to human rule and the fact that human kingdoms are under the control of the adversary, not institutions within the ideal of God. So let's read some of those. Those get very interesting, in my opinion. So we'll start off with one that I have read before. It's kind of the basis for everything here from the Christian perspective of the state, the beginning of the state, the way that we think of it with human rulers and kings. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, 
Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. The next is from John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the time for this world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be expelled. So that's talking about the adversary, the ruler of this world being expelled. So obviously the ruler isn't God or Christ because God isn't expelling himself. He's expelling the adversary. So that's what that's in reference to. Also in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, when he comes, he will show you that the world is wrong about sin, about righteousness and about judgment, about sin in that people don't put their trust in me about righteousness that in that I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, about judgment in that the ruler of this world has been judged. So the ruler has been judged. Just like it said in the earlier verse, now is the time for this world to be judged and the ruler of the world will be expelled. So there's judgment, there is expulsion. Let's go to Ephesians 2, the first two verses of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this is specifically talking about following in the ways of the world, calling them sinful and trespasses and saying that doing so is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So whatever the ruling spirit is over those who are against God, that is what you are following or who you are following if you're following the course of this world. And I think in the context of the other verses, it's clear that would be the adversary. Also in Ephesians, this would be chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, grow powerful in union with the Lord, in union with his mighty strength. Use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. For we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So he's saying that these are the two sides, and one is led by this spiritual entity, the adversary. And it is saying that you have rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers that are governing this darkness, governing the world, governing this rebellion against God. And so, again, it's pointing out the adversary is the one that is in opposition to the Lord, to God. Now, in James 4.4, it says, "'You unfaithful wives,' Don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Now, we'll get back to 1 Corinthians for the final verse here. This would be chapter 15, verses 22 through 25. 
For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive. But each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming, then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Now, I do repeat that final section of verses deliberately so that through the context of the previous verses, it can be more fully appreciated. According to the previous verses, the prince of this world, who is referred to as the adversary or Satan or the devil, is ruling on earth, as seen by the reference, quote, the ruler of this world has been judged. We are battling him and his kingdom, which is ruling through this, quote, present darkness. He is the one at work in, quote, the sons of disobedience. He is the ruler of this world, and so, quote, loving the world is hating God. Being united with the world, quote, makes himself God's enemy. We are told how God's enemies will fare in the end, for he will, quote, put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet, end quote. Satan rules this world through the kingdom of man. To partner with him is to be against God. There is a comparison that Lipscomb, David Lipscomb, who I quoted earlier, that he makes that highlights more on this question of how Christians should treat the state. And this is through a comparison of hell to human government. So there's this aspect that I did bring up earlier in this episode where I mentioned how God uses earthly governments for his will. And there are many references to this. I actually didn't read them. I probably either have or will in the future, but there are instances where God talks about the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon or these other groups and leaders who are definitely against God in his ways, but God refers to them as the sword of his wrath or even as his shepherd or as his staff. He's saying that he is using these kings to accomplish his goals. Now, notice God is using these kingdoms of man in a certain way because ultimately he has authority over all things. And that is not insinuating that we as human beings are to try to use the human governments to accomplish God's will, because God very clearly, according to these passages I have read, says that the kingdoms of man are against him, and we should not unite with them. So there is this distinction here that I think Lipscomb makes pretty clear, and I really like how he words this. So he says, quote, Hell, in our former essay we found, was an ordinance of God to punish wickedness. The devil, the ruler over hell, is God's minister to execute wrath and vengeance in the unseen spirit land. Ruled by the devil who seduces men to sin, it is overruled by God to punish sin and sinners, and so to, to deter from sin and encourage to good. It is a terror to evil doers. Hell itself ministers good to the obedient servant of God. To seek to resist or overturn hell as the institution of God for punishing sinners and destroying sin would be to resist the ordinance of God and would bring swift damnation to the inhabitant of the spirit land that would dare such a thing. So too, human government is God's ordinance to punish sinners. 
So long as sinners are in rebellion against God and his authority and refuse to be his servants, so long would it be resisting the ordinance of God to resist the human government and seek to overthrow or destroy it. It is God's ordinance for punishing sin and sinners, and as such, it is right and good for the end for which God ordained it. Because hell is an ordinance of God is no reason that his true servants, the angels, and, quote, spirits of the just made perfect should seek to enter it, guide and direct its operations, and partake of its spirits and its rewards. No more is the fact that civil government is an ordinance of God a reason why his children on earth should enter into and carry forward the operations of civil government drink into its spirit and partake of its rewards. It was not ordained for them, but the, quote, lawless and disobedient, end quote. This would probably be a reference to at least the concept in the earlier scripture I read about the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I've got one last interesting short quote here from Tertullian, and he said, quote, The Caesars themselves would have believed in Jesus Christ if they had not been necessary for the world, or if Christians could have been Caesars, end quote. So basically, the Caesars are necessary for the way God has allowed or directed the world to go as far as a timeline and outline is concerned. You have to have these kings and governments. They have their purpose. God has ordained a purpose for them. And so you can't have all the Caesars then following God because then they're not able to fulfill their their purpose. Just like you can't have Satan as an angel of light because then he wouldn't be able to fulfill this role of heading over hell, which is an ordinance that God has declared for a specific reason. But you also have the problem with the Caesars where a Christian can't be a Caesar, at least according to Tertullian. And that would be something that a lot of the very early Christians, the early church fathers talked about quite often, that either a Christian can't be a magistrate Or if someone was already a magistrate and converted to Christianity, then they would be required to leave their role as a political magistrate and instead pursue something different that was in line with the life of the Christian. Because it is not in line with the life of the Christian, according to them, to also be a part of the ruling authorities within the kingdom of man. And that is the big problem there, where you do have the kingdom of man, and it does have its role, and God does use it in certain ways. God did allow its establishment and ordained its establishment even to an extent. When you look at that narrative of the nation of Israel wanting a king and getting a king, God did allow for a king, and he did set up regulations and restrictions for what a king should and shouldn't do and how to hold them accountable. But he also did say that having a king is a rejection of himself. That is not his way. Yeshua makes it very clear later on in the New Testament that we as Christians should not be a part of the world, that the world and its systems are the enemies of God ruled by the adversary. Therefore, you cannot serve that master. You cannot serve it, period. Now, there is this distinction between serving and submitting. 
between worship and respect, between support and submission. There is a definite difference there. So while we cannot serve the master being the adversary, being the one that is over the kingdom of man and over the world, so to say, the rulers and authorities in this present darkness. We cannot serve that master. We cannot support that master. But we can submit to the role and authority that God has given that master and those systems in this present darkness. We can say that, yes, God has established something and he is allowing it to play out for his own purposes that are probably much grander than anything that we can fully comprehend. Therefore, we are not going to directly go against what God has set up here, even if that does mean negative consequences to us. You could think of something like controlling the weather. Would us as Christians or people that are following the natural order of things, would they want to be in complete control of the weather and control weather manipulation and these types of things? Well, no, that wouldn't really be in line with the natural order and with the way that God has established things to work on earth. However, that comes with the consequence of natural disasters that we do not control that end in death and destruction, and that is a negative thing. Same with states, same with the role of hell as described in the Bible there. There are many aspects of this where there are things in this world, there is sin in this world, there is free will, meaning there are two choices, meaning one is God and one is not As long as you have a choice that is not God and not according to his principles, there are bad things. And if you allow those bad things to exist, there will be bad consequences from those bad things. That just makes sense. But then to say that, oh, we are going to use these evil institutions for the good of God and it's going to be great. Well, no, that's that's not even their role. Their role is to play a specific role within this physical world that we live in, given the sinful nature of this world and all of humanity. It has a role. Again, the state would not be able to accomplish its role if all of its members were Christians living according to the principles of God, because they wouldn't be able to lie, to cheat, to steal, to kill, to do any of these things that a state necessarily has to do. That's kind of the purpose of a state. That's what it does. And it cannot do that if it is directly following God. So what God does is he allows those who choose a different path to then fulfill a role that is necessary for his timeline and his outline of history. And that is what's going on here. So we should not try to be a part of his enemies. We should not be a part of these institutions of the kingdom of God, nor should we try to rebel against them and fight against them because They are serving a role. They have a purpose. God has allowed them to be there and specifically said that they are not of him and that they are against him. They are his enemies. So make that very clear that we are living in this world. And I say we as Christians within this world, this present darkness, this uh, system of the kingdom of man, we are living in this world in a way that does not go against what God has established, but also does not support things that are against God, which makes it kind of difficult. So that's where we get into this idea of, I guess what I have called in the past, Christian agorism, of how do we apply this strategy, these principles, 
to the world, but as Christians from this biblical perspective. That, I believe, is fairly similar to the original church and how they handled things, but it is not something that we would probably recognize within local churches of modern times. So how do we apply that in modern times according to all of these things that I have been laying out in all of these verses that I have read? The option that I see as being both moral and one that seems like it would be realistic and effective would be the one that I've been espousing for a while, something akin to agorism, but from a Christian perspective. So you do have this aspect of operating outside of the system in every way that you reasonably can, while at the same time not taking that so far as to directly rebel against the system and directly go against some of those governmental laws that are in place. So ideally, you sidestep those laws, but the way that you sidestep them is not by finding loopholes, not by playing their game, not by trying to use politics to change the laws. No, the way that you do that is operate in a way that is outside of the jurisdiction of those laws. And there are many ways of doing that practically. And hopefully I will be getting into some of those probably in the next season. We'll see. But one of the main points is just that you are taking action towards these goals. You need to actually be taking steps and taking them in a practical way, in an actionable way in your own life to build that community, to build out these systems, to operate within these systems, and even have the ability to operate within these systems. There there isn't the opportunity to operate in alternative systems if there are no alternative systems. So building out those systems, uh, that's a very crucial part of being able to operate in those alternative systems. And again, with the church, that's the idea of the church. So ideally, I would think, at least according to my interpretation of the original biblical perspective, that biblical worldview of the original church, the ideal would be that the church is this alternative system, and that the church does build out these alternative systems, not only for themselves, but also for the other people within their local communities. So the church not only had a welfare system for the widows, the orphans, those that were in need within the church, they also took care of those needs within the community. They had outreach. Again, it wasn't just for the members, it was for the public. So when you think about the options for how you live out your life with this perspective, you do have the option of just withdrawing. You have that Benedict option, so to say, of withdrawing back to a monastery, withdrawing back, uh, you can use that figuratively or literally, but you've got like that t Uncle Ted strategy, Ted Kaczynski of, you know, basically go off into the woods, go off grid and live on your own and totally withdraw from the system. You've got kind of the Vin Armani perspective of move to Saipan, where the jurisdiction is much more open to freedom-oriented processes, and you're less restricted by the state. There are lots of options like this, but when you look from a Christian perspective of the early church, I would say that your role is to be a light within the world, to be a light in this present darkness. You are not of this world, but you do live in this role world. And that is part of your meaning. That is part of your purpose. That is part of the definition of what it is to be a Christian and to be a human in God's image, representing God to the rest of humanity. And in order to do that, you do have to be within society. You do have to be 
within the present darkness. You can't be outside of that or else your light can't shine in the darkness if you're not in the darkness. That doesn't really make any sense. And so if you want to be an example to others, if you want to shine that light to others, if you want to spread the principles of the natural order, you have to have those that you're spreading it to. You have to be an example to somebody. You have to be within this world, within this society. So again, withdrawing totally from the society does not seem like a viable Christian option, at least. It's, you know, plenty good option for other circumstances. And I'm not saying that you're not a Christian if you choose that option. But what I'm saying is that if you are trying to seek the ideal, go back to the first episode, I believe, of this season about the ideal, maybe the second or third episode, but early on, that's the idea of Christianity. You are always seeking perfection. You're always seeking the ideal, even though you know you're never going to hit that. And so if we are seeking the ideal, and we know that the ideal is to be a light in the darkness, then what we try to do is be a light in the darkness. And so that has, you know, necessarily it has aspects of requiring one to also be a part of society. Now, I will say that you can be a part of many different societies. There were times in history when people had to move out of a physical location to avoid being murdered and other things. You can look at the Jews and uh, Nazi Germany. You can look at other religious minorities, especially in Africa. There are many different examples of genocide according to religion. There are lots of different examples throughout history of people being forced to move or else suffer the consequences of oftentimes death. But what I would say is that if we are strictly looking at the original church and biblical principles, I have read the writings of these first Christians, the Christians within the first, say, 50 to 100 years of Yeshua teaching on earth, the disciples of the disciples and the disciples themselves and these first churches, they wrote each other. They sent letters back and forth. So you have scripture, but you also have other writings, other letters. And when you read those, there are a lot of entries, a lot of information about these first martyrs. And when you think of Rome at that point in time, being a Christian and living out that faith and being vocal about it, not in the sense of standing on the street corner, but not saying Caesar is Lord and not denying that Christ is Lord at the same time. When you do that, there was this aspect of drawing death upon yourself. There were martyrs in this early time. And what did Christians do when people joined the Christian movement, when they joined the way, did they exit the Roman Empire? Well, no. They stayed within the Roman Empire, stayed within their town, within their village, within their city, and started a church and grew that movement out. And when there were martyrs, what it did is it highlighted, go back to the beginning of this episode, it highlighted the contradistinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. These Christians were being persecuted and were being killed and were being tortured and all kinds of things for the sake of something that was pretty obviously morally correct. They they had the moral high ground. They weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't harming people. They weren't doing anything where they were using force or, or coercion to make somebody do something in any way. There's no crime being committed other than having their own personal individual beliefs. That's it. And yet they were still killed. And the solution was not to leave. The solution was to allow that to happen 
And in doing so, they were an example. They could live out the sacrifice of Christ, that same pattern, that same ideal. And in doing so, the church spread. It spread like crazy for you know, basically until now. I mean, you had uh, the church take over the Roman Empire shortly after this. And again, I would say that corruption came in and there's a lot of issues there. But my point is that the original push and the original spread and the original, you could say, infection of Christianity into Rome was oftentimes sparked by these martyrdoms. And that was a part of that. If the Christian movement would have just left and isolated themselves like they rightfully had the ability to do. No one would have thought less of them for not wanting to die and moving out of the city or an empire where their lives were threatened for just meeting together and believing certain things. But if they did that, the outcome would have likely, you know, we don't know for sure, but likely that would have been very different. The movement probably would not have spread in the same way. It wouldn't have been like a fire sweeping through that region. And so because they chose to stay, because they chose to be the light in the present darkness, there was this effect of Christianity spreading exponentially. There was a set of verses that were covered in a recent sermon in the church that I go to, and we have a small group that meets once a week that talks about these things. And one of the verses covered comes from Mark 9. It's uh, the majority of verse 13. And Yeshua is talking to his disciples, and they're talking about this aspect of, well, the scriptures say that Elijah has to come first, and um, he has not come yet. And so are you Elijah or John the Baptist, Elijah? You know, explain to us what this means, basically. And part of what Yeshua says is he says, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as the Tanakh says about him. And so basically what Yeshua is saying is that and in, in, just before this, he says that John the Baptist is Elijah, and he says that at other times as well. So whether that's literal or what most people would believe would be that that is figurative. John the Baptist played the role, the model, the pattern of Elijah, and he was a foretaste of a future event and another example of probably the last prophet, so to say, in the same pattern of Elijah. And Yeshua, the way he explains it is that John the Baptist is Elijah. So I guess you could go with something similar to reincarnation, but most people do not. Um, But the idea is that John the Baptist is Elijah. And so what he's saying is that the people did what pleased them. They did whatever they pleased to this prophet, to John the Baptist. And what did they do? Well, number one, he was arrested for speaking out against the local ruler for marrying, I think it was his uh, brother's wife or something like that. There's some sort of um, infraction there with marrying a family member, and that was morally wrong, and he did not shy away from saying so, and he got sent to prison. And then what happened? Well, that ruler had a young woman who danced for him and was so pleasing that he said he would give her whatever she wanted. She asked her mom, and basically her mom said, hey, we want John the Baptist's head on a platter. 
and they killed him. So not only did they kill him, but they also had thrown him in jail for reasons that he was morally in the right on. And the final death blow, they had tried to kill him earlier. Many different people did, but uh, the ruler did not want to kill him because they thought that he was a prophet of some kind or something similar, which, you know, we say that he was according to the Bible and Yeshua. But uh, what ended up happening was he died for reasons that were not really any fault of his own. It's not like he did something or committed a crime and therefore then they executed him. It was this random side story where the king promised something that he shouldn't have. You know, you're not supposed to give an oath. That will come up in Yeshua's teachings as well. And with that, he ended up dying. And so one of the points here and one of the points in some of the earlier passages that I read was that the world is run by the adversary. That is who runs this secular world, the secular culture, the kingdom of man. All of these things are run by the adversary. And you have these two camps. You have the kingdom of man, the kingdom of God. And from this perspective, when you think of this aspect of the world did what they pleased in regards to John the Baptist and killing him, the world wants you dead. And that is something that is historically proven as well as laid out in multiple ways in scripture. But the idea is that when you stand up for the kingdom of God, when you live out the kingdom of God, you live out these principles and you stand up for these principles in a moral fashion, those that are a part of the kingdom of man and not a part of the kingdom of God they're not only operating in a different way, they actually are totally against you. Not only are they against you, in many instances, they literally want you dead. And this is the pattern that happened with the prophets, where the prophets were people that spoke out for God. They spoke out for the biblical principles that God had laid down in the law. And in doing so, they were persecuted, they were prosecuted, and they were killed. That is what happens. And you even have this kind of playing out in modern times with the whole uh, Covidian narrative, where you have some people, and I have people that I know directly, that have this opinion that if you do not follow the mainstream narrative and you do not do the things that the mainstream narrative says that you should do, such as the shot and other things like that, then you deserve to die. And natural selection should take you out and the world will be better off for that. And I have seen and heard people say those things in many different forms and formats, but that is the idea. That is a narrative that is fairly mainstream right now, where one group wants the other group literally to not be alive anymore. And then there's also that figurative aspect as well, like we talked about with the Church of Woke and it being basically a death cult, but that death is not always a physical death. It can be a metaphorical death where you totally censor somebody on social media and their online presence is dead or their presence on that platform is dead or their job and their prospects of a job are dead because they didn't go along with what the kingdom of man wanted them to do. There are lots of different aspects of this. And so not only is this playing out in a secular way in modern times, I would argue that this probably will play out in a very similar way along religious lines as well. So if someone does stick to these biblical principles, if they do stand up for the kingdom of God in the face of a system run by the adversary that is directly against the kingdom of God and that actively wants the kingdom of God to go away, to die, then they're 
will be some problems there. There's a lot of conflict there. And sometimes, even when you just choose not to operate in their system, you are not directly going against them. You're not fighting them. You're not opposing them in any kind of large, open way. You're just not participating even just doing that, just like the original church, that can still bring a lot of animosity. That can bring some direct opposition. There are plenty of people, and again, I know people like this as well, who feel offended. They feel judged. They feel threatened by those of us who might have religious beliefs, and uh, specifically like Christians who have a certain moral principle that they live by and set of ethics that they believe are right. And so some people feel just automatically offended. You don't have to say anything to them. You're not actually talking to them in any way, but they're just around you. And they know that you disagree with their lifestyle. You disagree with some things that they do. So they just automatically feel judged. They automatically feel threatened and offended. And what do people do when they feel threatened and offended and judged? Usually they lash out. And that does happen. And so you have this dynamic playing out in many different ways. And I think we will be seeing that more and more as time goes on. So being ready for that, being aware of these things, knowing some of these dynamics that are going on in the background can be very helpful and is a definite good thing to be aware of. So with that... You've got this aspect that I've talked about in this episode about the Christian perspective, uh, Christian agorism, so to say, or something along those lines, how the Christian should operate under the state, given biblical principles and given the other things that we've discussed on the show. So you've got that aspect. I talked in the previous episode about basically secular methods for basically living according to voluntarism ideology, the non-aggression principle, something along those lines, a moral stance. How do you oppose the current system? How do you create a new system without directly going against it or violating this principle of not using force or coercion? I also had that discussion with uh, Pete Quinones, and if you listen to that interview, we discussed the two options of either using a political strategy or using more of a community-focused agorism strategy and the pros and cons of those, and I argued that outside of a moral context. And then I brought in the morality and ideology to talk about all the secular uh, different strategies that are implied by that and that people have used. And now I have laid out the Christian perspective on that. And so now we will move on from there in the following episode. So I will wrap up here. And basically, I'll just end us by saying thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for ratings, reviews, uh, financial support, feedback, emails, messages, all of these things. Thank you. I really do appreciate that. Let me know if you have any questions, any comments, any concerns. Please feel free to email me at rfoundations at protonmail.com. And I will continue to follow this train of thought in the next episode and for the rest of the season. Let me know if you have anything in particular that you really want me to cover. Those of you who are supporters on Patreon or Subscribestar, then definitely make use of that perk if you so choose. And if you have a specific question or topic that you really want me to address, I will do that for you. For those who are not financial supporters, I will also try to fit that in as long as I can. So feel free to send me a request, ask me a question, request a topic, anything like that. And I will try to reach out to you or I will try to address that on the show. So 
Thank you again. See the show notes for all of the different details and links. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.